Good evening. Welcome uh, to um, this month's Bible Q&A. <laughs> We're in for a long night. No, um, I don't know where Chris is, so I'm hoping he's going to show up at some point. We're on the Psalms this evening, so shall I pray, and then we'll jump in. Cool. Father God, thank you that your heart is for us to know you. Thank you that you long to reveal yourself to us and to draw us into your presence. You long to speak life, goodness, hope, redemption, healing into us. So God, we just thank you that you've given us your word where we discover all these things. And we pray that tonight as we talk through some of the questions we've got around uh, your word, that you, by your spirit, would bring revelation, that you would draw us deeper into relationship with you, that you would inspire us and stir our hearts towards you. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Great. Hey. Uh, so... Um, in case you've forgotten or in case you are new uh, to Bible Q&A, what we do is uh, throughout the month as we're reading through the scriptures, there's a chance for you to write questions down uh, about the things that we're reading and then drop them in the black box at the back. And then once a month we assemble this little panel <laughs> and, uh, and we just try to have a little bit of conversation around the questions that you guys have put in. Uh, this month we are talking about the Psalms. So um, I'm actually going to kick off. I've got the first question uh, this month. So, um, oh, come on then. Yes. Question one then is, um, what does Selah mean? Or Selah. Okay. You've probably seen that as you've been reading through the Bible, reading through the Psalms. Uh, some of you might actually see it written in. Some of you might have seen a little letter next to some of the words and jumped down to the bottom or the side of your Bible and it says, Oh, here it says the word Salah, also in these verses or something like that. And you might think, well, what does that word mean? Um, if you've got an NIV, like I tend to use, uh, you'll probably see in the footnote, it says something like a word of unknown meaning. Um, and you're like, well, gee, that's great. <laughs> God's a God that wants to be known. And then we've got these words that we cannot know. What, what does that mean? Um, and I disagree with that. And so do a lot of... Um, wiser scholars than I. Um, so I'm going to give you a little lowdown on what, what I think that word means um, and why I think it's actually a really great term in the scriptures. So um, first of all, what I'd love you to do is turn to Job chapter 28. Job chapter 28, uh, verse The NIV reads like this. It says, it cannot, it's talking about wisdom, okay? It cannot be bought with gold or of fur, with precious onyx or lapis lazuli, which is an epic blue color if you've never seen lapis lazuli. Um, there's a word here uh, in the Hebrew, which, which in the NIV is translated as bought, to buy. Um, but, but literally, it, it means... Uh, value or valued, to have value. So other translations read something like this. Um, talking about wisdom, it says, um, 
it, it, uh, uh, it, basically, it cannot be valued against gold or a fur or precious lapis lazuli. So things like that is, is the word to be valued, to have value. Um, and, and it is the Hebrew word solah, okay? Solah is the Hebrew word. Um, and, it, and it literally means um, to hang, to hang. So the idea is of like hanging weights. You, put, you hang a weight on a scale, yeah, and it, and it kind of balances out. So it can be translated to weigh. This is where we get the idea of value from. So if you were buying something, and if you understand how the NIV has got the word bought, because in the ancient times, if you were buying something, you'd weigh on your scales to get the, to get the value of something, and then you would buy it for, for that value. So uh, it means to weigh or to hang. Um, and it's also the root word, many believe, that the word selah comes from. So it comes from this root word, sulur. So selah, sulur, comes from the root word, which means to hang up or to hang or to, to weigh. Um, so if you turn to Psalm number three, let's go there as an example. Psalm 3, um, some of you at the end of verse 2, you'll either have a little letter or you'll see the word selah and the little letter will take you to a footnote which says that there is the word in Hebrew, selah. A word of uncertain meaning if you're the NIV. Um, and, um, and it will tell you that it also appears after verse 4 and again after verse 8. So imagine for a moment that this word after verse th- uh, after verse. Two, sorry, after verse two. Um, selah is there. And it comes from a root word meaning to weigh or to hang, okay? And, and to, to hang up as in to weigh. And so the idea is this. It, it, the idea is that you, you weigh your thoughts in that moment. You weigh what you have just declared in the text. And you pause and you wait. So many people think the word selah in in this kind of literature, poetic or musical literature, they think it means to pause and to wait, to take reflection and to weigh the words that you have just declared. Does that make sense? So, and if you look at the Psalms, you'll discover that that is a great, I think a great translation of what that word might mean. So if you look at Psalm 3 as an example, it says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Pause, reflect, wait. And then you'll notice the next verse shifts focus. That moment of pausing changes the focus of the psalmist. And he says, but you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. Selah. Pause. Reflect on what you've just said. My enemies are against me, but I call to the Lord and he is with me, right? You're dwelling on that, weighing that up, the weight of what that means. And then you'll notice that it shifts again. And so the language then becomes about my personal life. I can lie down and sleep. I wake up again because the Lord sustains me. So do you see that shift? There's that shift from my enemies are against me. Whoa, hang on a minute. Is that really what's going on? Let's take a moment to pause. No. The Lord, 
I call out to him and he's with me. Oh, let's reflect on that. Yeah, I can lie down and sleep in safety. Do you you see that? And and it does it again. I won't go through loads of them, but Psalm 4, at the end of verse 2 and verse 4, it's there again. So in Psalm 4, it says, answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How, uh, how long will you, uh, will you, How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Salah. Know that the Lord has set apart his faith. Do you see that shift again in in the the psalmist thinking? So I I love it because I think salah is a great word. It means to stop, to reflect, to weigh, to pause, and to think about what you've just read so that your perspective can shift. And you can declare who God really is and what he's doing in that moment. Is that okay? I think that's what Salah means. Great. Um, the next question was for Chris. But we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that hopefully when he gets here. So, so question three then is for Den. What is a song of ascent? Yep, I've, um, I've got a note here uh, from Matt. And it says, make the question, the first question, sharp. And make it quick. So here's my answer to that question. <laughs> of, of what is a song of ascent? A song of ascent is when you go up the stairs at night, sing it a song. That's it. Huh? <laughs> Thank you. I don't know what Matt's up to now. Um, obviously, there's a bit more to it than that. You okay there, Matt? Okay. Um, what I've done, because, um, you know, Matt said make it quick fire, so I've put down a few points um, which explains um, the Song of Ascents. First of all, the Song of Ascents goes from Psalm 120 and includes Psalm 120, and it goes to Psalm 134. So they all begin with Song of Ascent. Therefore, usually used for the Passover, for the first, for the Feast of Weeks, and for the Feast of Tabernacles. So that's what are usually used for by the uh, Levitical priests when they would be singing these uh, psalms in the temple. When you go into the final courtyard just before the temple doors, there's 15 steps rising up from that courtyard to the temple door. And what the Levites would do would stand on the bottom step and they would sing one of these songs of ascent. Then they would move up to the next step and sing a song of ascent and so on and so on. So the 15, cents, uh, the 15 steps would then go to the 15 psalms as they ascended the steps. So they're ascending, singing the songs to the temple door. Um, and this practice went on right the way through from Solomon's temple, uh, right into AD 70, which of course, uh, it, it finished then with the Roman occupation. Uh, and, uh, apart from uh, when the Babylonians took uh, the Israelites away to Babylon uh, for 70 years. But all the other years, these songs of ascent were sung by the Levites. <clears throat> the, uh, there's 15, there's uh, they were all sung on the 15th day of the month, the night of the full moon. 
So you, in, in, the 15th day is the full moon, so that you could see to sing these songs. Uh, and the 15th day of the month was for the Feast of Tabernacles and the Passover. So the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover always came on the 15th of the month with the full moon. So then they could sing these songs because the Passover happened at night. And so they would sing these psalms at night uh, with the light of the moon. So all around, you've got 15, 15, and 15. 15 psalms of ascent. You've got 15 steps. And you've got the 15th day of the month when they were sung. Uh, if you go back to the Levites um, and what they would do, was they would uh, sing that dedication. They would, they, would, they would sing the dedication all the time, right away through that Passover. Um, and I guess it, if um, you take it that Jesus was at the Passover at the last meal with his disciples, and it says that they sung a hymn, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives, they would have sung one of these psalms of ascent because that was the time to sing a song of ascent. So the hymn that Jesus would have sung with his disciples would have been one of these psalms from 120 to 134. I imagine that was a really long worship service, hey? If you had to sing a whole song before you could go up to the next step, and then there were 16, 15, 16 steps. That was... Um, We've only got three here, so it wouldn't be too bad, with it? <laughs> um, before we move on to the next couple of questions, have you guys got any thoughts or questions you want to throw out about the two questions we've had so far? Only to say the NASB tells you a full straight away. <laughs> there you go. The NASB. It is. It is. Um, all right, then. We'll move on to the next question. Uh, question four. Um, so Psalm 51, verse 5. Let's just read that together. So in Psalm 51, verse 5, David writes, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And the question is, are we really sinful at birth? That's a tough one, hey, isn't it? And I think it's a tough one because of what we think of when we think about sin. So we tend to think of sin as good and bad, right and wrong. And we have a level of uh, a marker for what we think is sinful and what we think isn't sinful, don't we? But I think a, a really helpful passage to go to, although a complex passage, and I'm going to try to keep it as simple as possible <laughs> without getting sucked into Paul's theology, but a really helpful passage to go to is Romans on this, okay? So if you jump to Romans chapter 5, let's read verses 12 to 14 together. So Paul writes this. <clears throat> he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Uh, sorry, came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. 
Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. So we could get sucked into real complex stuff here. So I'm going to try and keep it as simple as possible, okay? Um, First up, sin, God created a good world, and then sin, whatever it is, entered into creation at the time of Adam, okay? So the whole Adam and Eve story, suddenly sin became a reality in the good world that God created. All agreed on that? Okay, great. Um, So this passage explains that sin, therefore, is not just to do with right and wrong, good and bad, which is how we often think about it. Because this passage actually says, doesn't it? It says, um, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law. At the time of Adam to Moses, before the law was ever given, sin already existed. So before there was a moral compass of good and bad, right and wrong, sin was already in the world. And sin always leads to death. Okay? So sin, whatever it is, is not to do with our understanding of good and bad, right and wrong. Which is where we often get a little bit like, oh, what? Hang on. A brand newborn baby has come into the world into sin. But they've done nothing wrong. They've just been born. And we're like, we get a little bit, how do you feel about that? That's a a touchy one, isn't it? But what this is saying is sin's got nothing to do with good and bad, right and wrong, as we see it in terms of law and legality. Okay? Sin is already in the world. That child is entering a world of sin and is entering into sin. Um, So the question then is, well, what is sin? What, what is sin? If we're born into sin and we're born sinful, what is it? Um, in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, Paul writes, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a deprived mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. Now, um. The word knowledge there is the Greek version of the Hebrew word yada that we've talked about before, okay? Which doesn't just mean to know about, it means to intimately know, to have relationship with, okay? So what Paul's talking about here is that people gave up relationship with God. They chose their own way. They chose not to have relationship. So sin, uh, I would say, is is to not have relationship with God. Now, let me unpack that a bit for you, all right? So Romans 14, verse 23, says that everything that is not faith is sin. Everything that is not faith is sin. Faith is the only way to have relationship with God. We know that from the scriptures too, don't we? It's only by faith that we are saved, faith in Jesus by through his grace. Faith is about us putting our relationship, our trust, our hope in him. Here he is. I had faith that Chris would come. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, so faith is about relationship with God. It is, it is, about, it is, about, um, it is about being convinced, pistis, being convinced about who he is and walking with him and giving our lives to him and having that relationship with him. Everything other than that is sin. Jacob and I had a big conversation about this at one point, and we talked about, I might have said this before if I haven't, I'm repeating myself, forgive me, but um, we talked about two 
sides of a motorway, okay? Let's use the M5 as an example, all right? One side's heading to Birmingham, the other side's heading to Bristol. I'll let you decide which is the good and bad end of the motorway, all right? Um, one side is faith. It is the direction towards God, okay? And one side is sin. It is the direction away from God. Does that make sense? Faith is relationship with God. It's walking towards him, growing closer to him. Sin is the opposite. It is moving away from God. The Hebrew word, hatar, to miss the mark, to not walk in line with him, in step with him, to not, to not have relationship with him, to miss the mark of being with him, which is what human beings were made for, right? Genesis 1 was to, to be with him. Are you tracking with me so far? So... Um, David is born of a human being who was born of a human being of a human being, and we're going all the way back to Adam. God was made in Adam's image. And then Adam was supposed to make more in his image, go forth and be fruitful, multiply, okay? But Adam chose not to have relationship with God. Adam and Eve chose a different way. They chose to go a different way and came out of relationship with God and then produced their own image in humanity. And that image carries on. Does that make sense? So when David says, surely I was born sinful, what he's reflecting is that theology that Paul was picking up in Romans, that sin is in the world and that we are born into a world that is on a, it is on a, 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 a track away from God. There's good news though, right? Because Jesus comes to call us back into that relationship. But we ultimately are born into a world that is in, in emotion away from God. And therefore, that is sin. We're not born into a world that is full of faith, that is drawing us to God. We're born into a world that is sinful. Are you with me? Is that making sense? That, that is a very, very basic summing up of what you uh, may have heard um, as the, uh, the concept of original sin. Okay, that Adam sinned. And through, through Adam and Eve, sin has come into the world, and we are born into that, into the likeness of Adam, into that. We, no matter who we are, we want, we, we, we want ourselves to do well, right? We want ourselves to be good. We, we naturally have this inbuilt thing in us to want to be king of our own lives. And that comes from way back when, when human beings first said, actually, we want to be gods. And, and that's, how, that's the story of Genesis 3, isn't it? So we're born into that. But Jesus has come to call us out of that and back into relationship with him. Does that make sense? Is that, is a, it gets complex, but essentially the idea is that we all as human beings are born into sin. It doesn't matter that you've not done anything wrong, that you've not done anything right. You're not good or bad in worldly standards. You are born into a world that is on a trajectory away from God that is born into sin. And that's what that is all about. Great. Dwell on that. You can fire your questions back at me in a little bit. We're going to go to Chris's first question. <laughs> back to question two. Who was Asaf? Hello. Sorry, I didn't read the bulletin. So I thought it was R7. But there you go. I was just doing my duties as a father as well and thought, oh, I've got 10 minutes to spare. Then I saw your message and thought, oh, that was at five past seven, so I should probably get on. But yeah, thanks for holding the baying crowds up, because um, I'm sure you've all come to find out who Asaf was. Um, so I assume the person who asked this question was reading the several psalms that are attributed to him, 
and wondering who he is. Obviously, most of the Psalms are written or attributed to David, so that's an easy one. But occasionally we see words or names of people that we don't necessarily know off the top of our heads and I understand that the question of what a salar is has come up so you know that's another sort of oh not sure what that that one is so luckily there's a a simple answer Um, his name pops up in a in in a few sort of times in the old testament particularly in one chronicles so I'm just going to read you a couple of verses from one chronicles um just to give you an idea so um it says in 1 Chronicles 6, from chapter 31, I'm not going to go through all the names, it's just that his name is included. Um, these are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the lords after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they performed their service according to their order. So basically, David as king had rounded up these men, all I assume were holy, but I also hope were good at making music because those two things don't necessarily go together, as I'm sure we've all found out to our peril. Um, so, And then just later on in 1 Chronicles 15, uh, verse 16, it says, David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. So again, it's that recognition that these sort of musical men were from the Levites, so the, the priestly castes, the priestly tribe. So again, not just musicians, not just talented individuals, but people who'd been specifically chosen because of where they'd come from to minister to the people of Israel. And I suppose the key thing as well to say is, as the, f- the first reference points out, this was before um, the temple had been built. So the, this was still in sort of tabernacle times. And I, th- I thought what was quite interesting is I just looked over um, some of the Psalms that are attributed to him. And there's a lot of reference of um, sacrifice sanctuary, having a meeting place, a dwelling place. And then in Psalm 78, it also mentions the dwelling place at Shiloh, which was um, a, a sort of place of significance before the temple was, was built. It's a place in Samaria where the tabernacle was taken, where a lot of sort of ritual was, was happened. So that's Asaph, part of the sort of musical tribe if you like part of the people who were chosen to minister and I just really love the fact that it wasn't just to minister to God but also to um as it says to raise sounds of joy that was that was really cool so and again you see that I didn't read all of the psalms today that are attributed to him but if you go back to them you can see there's like a lot of the psalms of David a lot of sort of looking back and thinking or looking ahead with trepidation, but also looking back and being able to remember that God was God is good, God is faithful, God is kind, you know, all, the, all those things. So where we get our joy from, essentially. Nice, mate. I like that it was loud as well. Yeah, that's right. Loud. Yeah, maybe he was a drummer, I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
What's that? The drummer today, was he loud this morning? Oh dear. Uh, holy, very holy though. So holy. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Um, we'll go to Den's next question. Um, I think this is yours, Den, which is, does God practice deception? And let's make him reference to Psalm 18, verse 26. Uh, yeah, just give you a minute to look that up if you want to look it up. Um, Psalm 18, verse 26. I'm going from verse 25 as well to start off with. Okay, just give you a few seconds on that. Um, I think if the first two verses uh, sum up what the answer is. I mean, obviously, I do a bit more than this, but in verse 25, to the faithful, you show yourself faithful. <clears throat> so if a person's faithful to God, then God is going to show himself faithful to that person. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. So again, God is uh, reciprocating what the person is doing. If the person is blameless, then God is going to see him as blameless. And then go on to verse 26. To the pure, you show yourself pure. And again, if we're walking with God, if we've, if we've got a pure heart, God is going to show himself pure to us. And then comes a bit which um, is really the crux of the question. And that is, but to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. So God doesn't say, but to devious, I will show myself devious because God can't be devious. Uh, it's not within his nature. He cannot go against his nature. He cannot be devious. So instead, in that verse it says, but to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. And what that uh, explains to us is that God switches it around in a way from uh, where you can't call him devious so he switches it around. So the idea of the verse seems to be that if a person insists with devious ways in his dealings with God, God will outwit him as that person deserves. So God is there. So a person is there trying to um, be devious uh, and trying to um, walk around what God wants him to do to, to sin. But God won't be devious back to that person. He will outwit him in his own way, but in truth and in light and in who God is. So the verses uh, we can say is the attitude of God towards man is created by that attitude towards him. So our attitude towards God, God reciprocates that attitude back to us. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about Christian people here in a way. I'm talking about people in the world who are completely against God. And so if they think they're going to put one over on God, they're not going to. He is not going to be deceitful back, but he is going to uh, use his own methods to, if you like, sort them out. God often treats a man in the same way that man treats others. So if we're looking at each other now, if I treat you badly, God can look at me and, and he can treat me in the same manner. Because God won't have anything um, that is wrong and sinful in the world. And I think this goes, if you want to bring this down to um, a level where it's between you and me, if you like. If I judge you, and you know these verses well, if I judge you, I can be judged. 
Um, you know, uh, so even within the church, I mean, I haven't seen it happen in this church uh, since I've been back, but I've certainly been in churches where people have judged other people. And then those people could be judged as they have judged other people. So it, it, it not only comes down to God dealing with man, but it's in a way, it's man dealing with man, but God dealing with man through man, uh, not judging, uh, don't let's judge each other. Um, and I often think about a verse uh, where it says that, um, you know, you can, um, let me just pick this up. <clears throat> Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Um, and I, I often look at this verse, that if something is done wrong to us, we can look for vengeance. But if we leave that vengeance to God, we stand back and we leave that vengeance to God, then what that verse really means is that God will pile that vengeance on that person far more than what we could pile vengeance on that person. We'll pile vengeance on that person, but then we won't feel good about it. But just leave that to God, and he will be piling the vengeance on that person far more and in far different ways than what we could so in a way, it's, it's, uh, God is not devious in a way to sum up. He cannot be devious because he cannot go against his own nature. So if a person is devious to God, then God will uh, turn that in a different way and he will sort it out in a different way, in his own way. Uh, and we'll see this in the world because the world thinks that they can go along and they can do what they like. But in the background... God is in charge, and he is sorting everything out. So for me, it goes on two levels. It goes from God dealing with man, and also goes through man dealing with man, how we deal with each other, although God is an overall charge. Um, so uh, it, it, this goes back to uh, Matt's favorite chapter as well. Um, Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 21 uh, and what that says, if you, I'll give you a mo if you want to look that up. God says in that verse, if you remain hostile to me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over. So that almost goes back to the um, thing of my vengeance, your, you know, the vengeance is, is, is mine, says the Lord. Because the afflictions he will bring on the Israel will be multiplied seven times over. So leave the afflictions to God and, uh, because he cannot be deceptive. So uh, everything's hinging on that verse, verse 26. To the pure, you show yourself pure. Pure God, if I can put it that way. Uh, but to the devious, God will show himself shrewd. Great. Okay. Um, Chris, we'll jump to your second question. So Psalm 5 verse 5 and 11 verse 5 seems to imply that God hates people. Does God hate all who do wrong? Um, oh, great. Thanks for that. <laughs> Give me the toughest question of the night. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, let's read both of those. So Psalm 5 verse 5 says the boastful shall not stand before your eyes 
you hate all evildoers. And then chapter 11, verse 5. says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Mine says, The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. Wow, okay, so that's, that's the, um, the HV version, the hardcore version <laughs> that Matt enjoys bringing to church. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think I'm always keen to, as I think we all should be, to, to try and understand you know, the context and the language that's used. And I think that's why this session's always so good, because I think we always come away thinking, oh, you, you know, I used to think this, but, you know, someone explained to me that maybe the word doesn't quite mean that. But unless I'm mistaken, I'm, you know, the, it's pretty clear that that word hate is used to Im- imply hatred. So I suppose... I don't. I don't know if I've got a definitive answer. To be honest, I don't. I don't think it's. I don't think it's clear enough to say, to answer the question. God hates all who do wrong, because we'd all be, we'd all be really in trouble then. But I think that it'd be interesting to understand our perception of hatred. And how that might affect how we view the scripture. So, you know, if I just, if before all this I just asked you to close your eyes and picture what it means to have hatred, we'd probably all have a different image, but I imagine we'd have a similar sort of picture. And I mean, for me, I would picture violence, I would picture hurting. I would picture, you know, one or, well, two or more groups of people or individuals really at odds with one another. And I think, I mean, I think some of that applies to what the scripture might be saying when it, when it talks about hatred. But I don't know whether, I mean, it's interesting that Matt's version says with a passion, but I wonder whether the hatred that is implied or or made explicit in these couple of chapters is just less about violence and and, and more about some some other kind of emotion. Um, Because, I mean, God can, can be violent, you know, there's no doubt about that. But I think that the hatred that is talked about here is is not the kind of hatred that we would have for someone else and it'd be i think it'd be interesting to have have a chat about that in our groups really but i think the other thing is just just to be be aware of the 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 objects of of this hatred in in both psalms now obviously i can't speak for the whole of scripture because i don't remember it all <laughs> i don't remember where else it talks about hatred or this sort of emotion, um, if that's the right word to use, really. But Psalm 5 talks about the boastful, and Psalm 11 talks about those who love violence. So again, I don't, I'm not, 
I don't think it's just about what hatred means. And I think it would be a good thing for us to explore that. But also, I don't... It's, we all we do all deliberately sin, there's no doubt about that. And obviously when I walked in, Matt was talking about that. You're either going away from God or towards him. We do all deliberately... It's not just a case of saying, oh, I made a mistake again, you know. We do deliberately. But I wonder, what I'm just putting out there, I wonder whether there's a sort of class of sin, a class of people even who God has a... Have has a unique, well, in this case, hatred for a unique passion against those who are boastful, those who love violence. Um, so I'm not answering the question definitively because I just don't think it's possible. Don't think we've got the 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 foresight. We're not in the position to say from from what I understand. But I think that it's definitely clear it's hatred. I think we need to review what the scripture means by hatred. Uh, and I think that we have to also review who is this passion against intended for. I've just been doing a little Hebrew research while you were talking, because it's an interesting question, isn't it? That God hates people, it sounds like. But um, two things, and this again is, not a defensive answer, just a little more to add to your thinking, maybe. Um, the first one is that in Psalm 11, verse 5, in the Hebrew, it literally reads like this. So it, it reads, Yahweh, the righteous tests. So the idea is that God tests the righteous, okay? But the wicked and the one who loves violence hates his soul. That's interesting, isn't it? Because you read that, it doesn't sound like it says God hates them. It sounds like that the one who does wicked actually must hate his own soul. You know, um, the one who, who does violence, the one who loves violence, hates his soul. And I think if you go through other parts in scripture, you'll see that wickedness and violence always lead to death and destruction, right? So if you love that stuff, you're going to bring about death and destruction on yourself. You must... You must have a hatred for your own soul. I think that's an interesting, just looking up the Hebrew and the way the Hebrew reads, potentially could mean something different. However, Psalm 5, verse 5, I didn't have the same luck. It definitely does read that God, God hates those who, uh, who are workers of iniquity. So those who, who scheme to bring about evil things, God has a hatred towards them. So I did look up the meaning of the word hatred. Um, in the Hebrew, um, and it can mean he detests. It can mean that he turns against or away from. It can mean that he doesn't love, that unloved. So that word can mean all of those things. So whereas we think of hatred as to suddenly become evil towards, that's kind of how we start thinking of hatred, don't we? Actually, what this is conveying is a deep sense of the fact that God just, he, he just turns away from that. Like he does not love that. He detests the people that want to do that. Like, he just can't be part of that and connect with that. So, yeah, I don't want to soften any sense of the righteous anger of God. Like, I think if he is God and he is just, then surely he would not stand for that stuff. If there's something in us that is good, when we see evil, a hatred, a, 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 something burns within us against that stuff, doesn't it? So I, I don't want to 
dull down the fact that God can hate those things or people that kind of want to stir that stuff up. But um, yeah, interesting. Um, We're going to pause really briefly, uh, just for a couple of minutes, Um, give you maybe just a few minutes to talk uh, in kind of twos or threes. And then what we'll do is if you want to ask anything uh, kind of about what we've shared so far, we'll do that before we move on to the next couple of questions. But literally just a couple of minutes, because there are three more questions to kind of get through. But if you want to kind of bounce any comments back or ask anything about what you shared, I'll quickly just go back through what we've shared so far. So um, what does Salah mean? Who is Asaf? What is a song of ascent? Are we really sinful at birth? Uh, does God hate all who do wrong? And does God practice deception? So take a couple of minutes have a little chat about the answers we've shared. And if you want to fire some stuff back, we'll, 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 t- we'll try and tackle some of that. Great. Go. <laughs> okay, guys, I'm going to stop you there. Um, anyone anyone want to chip in any questions comments that you want to fire back at us about those questions oh yeah that would be good yeah um come on who wants to yeah joe go on then tell us what question you're referring to great well just this is a big it's a i'm not expecting anyone to answer this now because this is a big thing but just i just find it really infuriating because matt you've gone and just not infuriating to you but infuriating about translations i just it just drives me nuts because you've just gone and said something that feels totally different for psalm 11 verse 5 Mm. and i just like there was a time when i was ignorant and didn't know any better and now I slightly know better, and I slightly know more, and it just, yeah. I... Let me jump in on that and say, um, firstly, I am not a Hebrew Bible scholar. So if I tell you something in Hebrew, check it out for yourself. And the people that translated the NIV are wiser than I, and there are teams of them that have done it. And so there's a reason that they've chosen to translate it that way. But other translations will translate it differently. Um, and that is to do with the way that they have seen the uh, construction of the Hebrew language, different scrolls and things that they're getting it from, all that kind of thing. Um, I like the way that I just translated chapter 11, verse 5 to you. It sits more comfortably with me, right? It makes a bit more sense in my mind. Um, and that's probably because we're modern Western enlightened folk and we like a little softer kind of God. Um, however, um, I, and well, I think that what I've said to you makes sense. I think it makes sense biblically. I think it could be true. I also think that the way that the NIV has translated Psalm 11 verse 5 is also true. I, I don't see a problem with it, me personally. I can wrestle with it because I'm like, wow, God hates these people. Like, this is a God of love. Um, um, but I think it's also true. And I think let's, let's, we're made in the image of God, right? So all the range of emotions that you feel, God feels. You're made in his image. So everything that you feel, I think God can feel. 
I think he feels it on a much more pure level than we do. He's not warped by sin. Okay, he is light and he is good. And so when he feels those things, I think they're good and they're genuine. But if, he, if you can feel it, he can feel it. And I think for a moment of people that I love, that have done things that I hate, and in those moments, sometimes I have a hatred towards that person because of those things. Now, if that can happen for me, I think that that's probably a reality for God, because I'm made in his image. Now, I don't want to make him like me and make him in my image. He is God. But I think the scriptures tell us that God can be so angry about something, that the people he loves suddenly can become those that he is so angry at, that you could describe it as hatred. Does he, does he stop loving them? No, I don't think so. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Israelites, you see it like this cycle, like this throughout the scriptures, don't you, you know? So, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Does that help? I, don't, don't be put off of taking what your Bible, whatever translation you're reading, people have worked real hard on bringing about translations. And if you go to the front of your Bible, there's probably a little note that says, Here, here's why we've translated it this way. And they explain a bit about their thinking behind this translation. And each of the scholars and the linguists and all of that that have worked together to make these translations will have different reasons why they've tried to translate it. Um, so some will be they want to get as close to the word-for-word translation as possible. Some will want to try and capture like the essence of what is going on in that passage. Some will want to make it accessible for modern readers. And there's all kinds of things. So, and, and there's a wide range of good in all of that. Um, but maybe just check a translation against another one or check out the interlinary Bible on biblehub.com and see what the actual Hebrew is. Um, Yeah, cool. Anyone else? No? I feel like there's a whole lot of original sin kind of... You've dealt with it, have you? Yeah. Psalm. It is, yeah. Dan, what does the word psalm mean? Yeah, well, I said to Matt, take a moment. I said to Matt, the the book in the Bible that I don't know much about and um, I'm not too familiar with is the book of Psalms, right? So I don't know the answer. And I don't know much about the Psalms, so um, you're Matt, you're going to have to look it up. Um, before I look up what this says, my understanding has been, until this very moment, we'll see what this says in a second, uh, my understanding is that a psalm is a song. It's, a, it's, like a, it's, a, it's a poetic style of literature. So the, the psalms, the psalmist, the psalter, the, the, they are um, poems, songs, uh, songwriters, songbooks, hymn books, that kind of thing. And so the Psalms were considered to be a bit of a hymn book of the Israelites. Um, a little bit of history about the Psalms. Um, again, this depends on your understanding of how the scriptures were formed, but many people uh, would say that the Psalms came into being uh, or were gathered in the way that we have them now um, in the earliest form during the exile. So when the Israelites were taken out from Egypt, out from Egypt, out from, uh, that's the Exodus, out from Israel and, uh, and into Babylon, into captivity, they didn't have their scriptures. So they gathered together, the priests gathered together the Psalms. And, and you'll notice in the Psalms, I've talked about this before, but there are five books. So you get book one, book two, book three, and they all 
um, thematically and in the way that they do things, they mirror the five books of Moses. So book one, you get a lot of creation stuff. And Psalm 1, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, Psalm 1 actually mirrors the creation story with light and darkness and then culminating in a garden with a tree. And you get this whole kind of Genesis stuff. And so there's a lot of deep and rich theology in the Psalms because they are they are they were a way of teaching the Israelites that didn't have the Torah in captivity about their God and about their story. So, yeah, song and songs are, I would say, uh, probably most of us, the theology that we know, most of us, definitely as this was true for me as a teenager, uh, growing up, most of us, the things that we think about God, we actually get from the hymns and the songs that we sing. Um, probably... 90% of the things I preach, you forget by the time you've walked out the door. <laughs> um, you don't have to confess to that. Uh, uh, but the songs we sing, they get stuck in your head, right? And you know your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me because we've sang it over and over and over. And you're like, Matt, are we actually going to sing that chorus again? It, yeah, we are because it, it gets in us and we learn about God through what we sing. It was the same with the Psalms. That was kind of part of the idea of the Psalms. Um, yeah, cool. Anything else? Can I jump in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the sake of the podcast, do you want to just sum up what was said? Yeah, so just a, a question about hatred and perhaps what the difference is between provocation and hatred and where the line is between provoking somebody to indulge your hatred. Is that is that a good summary of the question or the... No, I'm not answering. I'm just summarising your point, your question, yeah. just for the just so I can give you my thoughts clearly, rather than not answering your question. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just think, yeah, it's really difficult. Um, you know, without wanting to go into lots of personal detail, I think that's a conversation that I have with Nick quite often, my better half. Um, and we've got we've actually got really separate ideas about that. I'm not going to sort of go into the detail because um don't think that's fair because she's not here to respond but um and I don't think either are, are, are wrong per se yeah. I think like I said, I think you know as and as Matt was saying you know if if it is true that God hates somebody, I think it's I think it's also really important to point out that that hatred it doesn't last forever you know it for, for for whatever reason if the people that god has that burning hatred against turn to him whether it's israel whether it's israel's enemies then god is merciful and quick to forgive and i think that's that's the difference isn't it when you're seeking to provoke somebody 
you're not doing it to teach them or you're not doing it to draw something better out or you're not, you're not doing it with the intention that if they... Because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm as good as anyone at provoking people. Uh, I'm trying to get better at not doing it, but, um, <laughs> but, but certainly I'm, I'm very good. <laughs> certainly I'm very good at it. And I can tell you categorically, I've never done it with the thought in mind... Or if this person decides to apologize or say, I've had enough, can we just stop? I'm going to stop straight away and just start loving them again. In my mind, I'm just in the zone. You know, I'm, I want to keep making my point. And, and I think that's the difference because whatever this hatred is that, that God has or that, we've, that, he, that somebody has experienced at some point, I, th- I think the difference is that he's, he's not out there to provoke people. He's, he's doing it, as Matt said, out, out of the pureness of his righteousness. And, and there is a point where whoever that person is, when they say, you know, I'm sorry, Lord, or, you know, we know we've done wrong, it, it all changes. And I, I think that, you know, whether you want to call it hatred or justice, that's, that's, that's the gospel, isn't it? You know, at the end of the day, whether you like it or not, if you, whether you call it hatred or, you know, righteousness or whatever, if for those who don't say sorry to God, for those who don't realise their sin and turn to Jesus for repentance, the, you know, it's not good news, is it? So that, for me, that's, that's the difference, I suppose. I've always looked at it. Um, so... God hates the sin. God hates what the person is doing, but not the person. Um, that's the way I've looked at it. Uh, so if we, if we do something wrong, God hates that, but he still loves us. Um, that's, the way I, that's the way I look at how God looks, at, looks on that. It's um, an interesting one, and I would side with that, but just to throw a spanner in the works and move us quickly on. What if sin, though, is not about what you do, but is about your very nature? If God hates sin and it's, yeah. Just let you ponder on that one. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to move us on because of time. (laughs) Uh, Okay, let's move on. We're going to move on. So next question. Um, Oh, yes. Question seven. Uh, Does Psalm 51 verse 16 contradict what is taught in Leviticus? Let's go to Psalm 51 verse 16. Psalm verse Psalm 51 verse 16 says, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Okay. So I guess this question comes from the idea that Leviticus calls people to make offerings and burnt offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. And here David is writing, you don't delight in sacrifice, uh, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. It's like, it feels like on the surface it contradicts what is taught in Leviticus. And Leviticus' is key teaching, and right at the center of the Torah, is all about bringing offerings and sacrifices. And here David's saying, well, this is not what you, you desire. You don't want us to do these things, otherwise I would do it. Um, so I think, first of all, to understand... Uh, to to make sense of the question, we need to understand the psalm and what is going on in this psalm. So if you go to the top of Psalm 51, uh, you may see in your Bibles that it says this, for the director of music, a psalm of David, 
when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Do you see that? So this psalm is a psalm that David wrote after Nathan the prophet confronted him about his sin. He just had an affair with this woman, and he confronts him, and David he, David, he humbles himself and he repents and he, and this is a psalm that comes out of that. He says, have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love. He knows what he's done is wrong and he's been called out uh, on it. And then we get down to, to verse 16 and, and David basically, he, he says this line, in the context of that, I've, I've done wrong. In the context of that, he says, you you don't desire, you don't delight in, in sacrifice. You don't delight in my sacrifice. Otherwise, I bring it. There's a problem here. There's something wrong with, with where I'm at. And so I'm not just going to bring it. But you need to keep reading um, to make sense of uh, what is going on here. Um, David says in verse 17, my sacrifice. Oh, so he's still making a sacrifice. But listen, my sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. And then here it comes, verse 19. Then, then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Oh, so there is still in David a desire to make these burnt offerings and these sacrifices. But before he can do that, He needs to sort out his heart. You see, the offerings and the sacrifices, they're not the thing. They're the outworking of what is going on in here. Like when we come to worship God, we sing these songs. Does God want your songs? Well, he wants them if you mean them. He wants them if that's what you really mean. If you really love him, if you really think that's who he is to you, then yes, he wants that. He wants wants what's going on in here to be reflected in what is happening out there. If you jump to Leviticus Um, Chapter 4, verse 22. So Leviticus chapter 4 is all about the sin offering, okay? In verse 22, it says this. When a leader, which is what David was, right? He was a ruler, a leader, a king. When a leader sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the commands of the Lord his God, when he realizes his guilt, and the sin he has committed becomes known, he must bring as his offering a male goat without defect. So when a leader like David does something wrong, commits a sinful thing that is, that is forbidden in the law of the Lord, and he realizes and it is made known, then he can bring an offering. Do you see that? God still wants his offering, but he wants his heart to be right first when he's realized in himself what he's done and he's repented and he's dealt with that and he's been honest about it before his people, then he can bring an offering. So does Psalm 51 verse 16 contradict Leviticus? No, it's actually the outworking of Leviticus and it's the very thing that Leviticus calls for, a right heart before God so that then you can come and bring an offering. And do you remember when we studied Leviticus, we talked about the word... um, uh, Corban? Mm, yeah. Offering. Corban. Literally in the Hebrew means to draw near. So what were the offerings and sacrifices all about? They were outward acts 
that, that was symbolic of you drawing near to God. You came near to the Holy of Holies. You bought your, your offering, which was often a, uh, it was meat, and it was eaten in the temple. It, you, you came near to God, and you had a meal with him. So offerings and sacrifices were all about drawing near to him. And God says, I want you to draw near to me, but I want your heart right first, so this relationship is right. I still want you to draw near. I want you to be right first. And that's what David is reflecting in Psalm 51. I've, I've screwed up. I've messed up. I'm going to be real before you. I'm going to write a song about it that all Israel will sing so that they'll know it. I'm going to be honest about this because I want to draw near to you again. And once I put it right in my heart, then I'll bring my offerings to you. Then I'll come near to you and have a meal with you and draw near to you. Does that make sense? Cool. All right. Um, next question then is, I think this is you, Chris. Yep. Uh, what, does it, what does Psalm 73 verses 13 and 14 mean when it talks about monsters? Ooh. So um, it's actually Psalm 74. So that's all right. No, no, it's fine. I did think, oh, there's no monsters here, but um, there you go. But luckily the monsters were waiting around the corner in Psalm 74 for me. Um, so, yeah, just, just read, let's read it first. Um, chapters 13 and 14 to, to give us an idea of what we're talking about. Uh, this is a Psalm of Asaf, uh, our, our friend Asaf. And he says, you, God, divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. So there you go. There's your sea monsters and also mention of Leviathan, who is a mythical sea creature. Um, Not just in in ancient Hebrew, it's, it's it's a creature that... You know, most people would probably understand a little of because it's sort of carried through. Um, it's it's uh, an image that's used in um, political philosophy. It's 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 well known. But for this for this for the purpose of explaining the sea monsters, I'm going to sort of take Le- Leviathan and and sea monsters and sort of put them together because it's it's sort of trying to explain the same thing. Um, but they are different words. So the, the word used in chapter 13, which in my translation comes out as sea monsters, is a different word to the word that comes out as le- Leviathan. Um, it's tannin. And what's interesting about the word is that, that throughout scripture it's used both in a literal and metaphorical sense. So um, in terms of literally, um, it's used... Um, to describe God making the creatures of the sea in the Genesis story. So, you know, it's, it's literally God made the monsters of the sea or, you know, for, for, the, for the, yeah, the beasts or the creatures of the sea. Um, but also when Moses takes his staff and, you know, whacks it down on the floor, again, the word for snake is tannin, so again, a creature of, of some description. So it's used literally, but it's also used um, metaphorically, much as a lot of the sort of ideas of dragons and unicorns and various creatures that pop up in the Bible are. So we're just going to turn to two of those to sort of explain and come back to, to this psalm. So first of all, we're going to go to Jeremiah 51. So I'm going to sort of cross over. 
So Jeremiah 51, from my notes, verse 34. says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has rinsed me out. That's really horrible, isn't it? Rinse me out. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is, Jeremiah is describing Nebuchadnezzar using that same word. And, you know, in this translation, it just comes out as monster, but it's tannin. Okay, so it's used to describe this sort of, in the eyes of Jeremiah, in the eyes of the Lord, an enemy of some description. Um, If we then turn to Ezekiel, chapter 29. Verse 3, the same sort of thing happens. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. So again, that word dragon is the same word. It's tannin, it's sea creature, monster, some kind of mythical beast. Not literal, Pharaoh probably wasn't a you know a very nice looking man um and and i imagine the israelites would probably paint him in that light but he wasn't literally a dragon um so we go back to the psalm i'm just going to read the the sort of first few chapters before just to put it into context um so i'm going to read from from verse 9 of chapter 74 we do not see our signs There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Pause. Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. So the first three verses there, Asaph is sort of, you know, despairing. How long, God, are you going to let our foes mock us and, you know, sort of surround us? But then... The first clue is, yet God, my king, is from of old. So he's looking, looking back, and he's talking about salvation being across the whole earth. So that's the first clue as to what, what this reference might be. So it's before this time. And then, you divided the sea by your might. Again, a reference to the people of Israel escaping Egypt. That's why I've, it's not there. It doesn't, there's no footnote that says this is talking about this, but... Again, it's a strong reference. It's a, it's a clear reference. This is talking about the sea being parted. And then you broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. We already know from looking at those two other verses later on in Scripture that that word can be used to describe the enemy. So Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh. And I think in this instance, it's pretty clear that it's talking about Pharaoh's army. You know, that the sea coming back down crushed the heads of of the enemy um and then you know just to sort of top it up top it off the icing on the cake you gave him so pharaoh but you know him that collective 
sort of sense of the army of Pharaoh as food for the creatures of the wilderness. So maybe that's just a literal, they died in the water and, you know, were eaten up by the other sea monsters that, that were lurking around. Awesome. I'm going to jump in because there's something I love about this. <laughs> um, I love that you pulled out the um, stuff from, from Ezekiel and uh, Jeremiah, and, um, and you pulled out the fact that, that, that this word that's used for monsters, is uh, it means beasts or it means uh, serpent. And lots of translations you'll read serpent is the, is the same one. Um, swing back to Genesis chapter 3. Just while you're doing that, it's tannin is also the modern Hebrew word for crocodile. Mm. So there you go. Genesis chapter three, where there's a serpent, a tannin, uh, who is deceiving Eve. And um, listen to this down in verse thirteen. Mm, no, verse fourteen. So Yahweh God said to the tannin, the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, that's beasts, uh, and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. Go back to Psalm 74 check out what God does, what, what God does to the tannin, to the, the monsters. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monsters. Uh, it was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan, of the, the sea serpent. Um, and so, so what's going on here is, Chris is absolutely right. This is making reference to Egypt and to the Egyptians. And as you track through the Bible, you get to Jeremiah, you get to the other prophets, and the prophets start connecting Babylon with the serpent or the monster and Egypt with the serpent or the monster. And do you remember the verse that says, our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with the principalities and powers in the spiritual realms, with, with the evil spirits, with evil forces? Right from the beginning, there was an evil force, the serpent. And the serpent has been behind all of these things all the way through. You get to Babel, you get to Babylon, you get to Egypt, you get to Revelation, and you'll see the serpent there again, all the way through the Bible. Um, so it's not that necessarily Egypt is evil, or, but it's that somehow this serpent, this evil creature that's there from Genesis 3, has been manipulating people all the way through, people that God loves. He's manipulating them and using them for evil. And you see this language linked up all the way through. But, but um, when they're linking, they're talking about the seas parting, they are referring to Egypt. But the crushing of the head, that's a connection right back to Genesis. God is, we, we read that and go, oh yeah, it's coming in Jesus. But the Israelites, they saw that God was doing that all the way through. He was crushing the head of the serpent all the way through. And he's going to have the victory over him. So, yeah, cool. Um, Dan, were songs sung, psalms sung corporately like we sing to Jesus today? Yes. <laughs> yeah, with Chris's question um, about, uh, about the song, what, what, what we've just discussed, when I come in tonight, on, on my list of questions, it's got Psalm 73, right? 
It's really Psalm 74. So I said to Matt, I don't get this question. I can't see any monsters. And he gave me the wrong psalm, didn't he? So I'm saying, I, I don't get this. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Um, well, what I said... Um, I thought you just had an NASB is, and it was wrong or something. That's really is, yes. Um, if you want to turn to uh, Chronicles chapter 23, 1 Chronicles chapter 23 and verses 3 to 5. Okay. Uh, it says there that um, this is David preparing the, um, the things for the temple, for Solomon's temple when it's built. Uh, and he's preparing the instruments, etc., for the Levites. And it says, verse 3, the Levites, 30 years old or more, were counted, and the total number of men was 38,000. David said of these, 24,000 are to be in charge of the work of the temple of the Lord, 6,000 are to be officials and judges, 4,000 are to be gatekeepers, and this is what we're looking for, and 4,000 are to praise the Lord with musical instruments. And so already, if you've got 4,000 people, 4,000 Levites with instruments, you're not going to have them uh, playing an instrument separately and someone singing with them separately. There, there's 4,000 Levites here, so going to be a, it's going to be a choral. So straight away, you've got uh, maybe 50, 60 instruments being played. So you're going to have a lot of people singing, uh, a lot of Levites singing uh, these songs. So there's, there's, there's always this choral element uh, to the psalms as we sing today in church uh, as a choral, going right the way back to when Solomon's temple uh, was going to be built. And as I've mentioned in uh, a previous question, the Levites sang on those 15 stairs going up to the temple doors. So they sang in, in a choral fashion there, singing those songs of ascent. So this has always been around uh, since the days of Solomon's temple. And as I explained in an earlier question, those songs were, were sung right the way through to the destruction of the temple by the Romans in AD 70. So that went on for a, for a long, long time. I mean, Solomon was 960 BC, right up to um, AD 70, with the break of 70 years um, for the Babylonian exile. So the this, this songs are sung in a choral right the way through that. Uh, and again, I've mentioned that Jesus and the disciples at the Passover sung a hymn. That would have been a song. That would have been a song of a sense. So the 12... And Jesus would have sung uh, a psalm there as, as, as a choral together. Uh, if you want to turn to uh, 1 Samuel and chapter 18, uh, verses 6 to 7. This is the um, time when uh, Saul had sent David out. And David had conquered many, many people. Um, and the, the woman says that uh, Saul is slain his thousands, and David is sent, slain his tens of thousands. And the women are dancing, they're singing, they're playing timbrels, they're playing lyres, and so they're singing in a corporate group. Now, I know that, that, that this time, you know, they, they would have been singing some of the psalms, they would have been singing, making up songs with, 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 with the um, victory of David, 
and so that the whole thing it going right through the bible from from uh, solomon's temple right the way through to what we've seen with jesus um singing at that passover meal with his disciples that corporate thing goes right the way through right the way through the old testament um going back to um miriam when they crossed the red sea and uh aaron's uh, sister miriam gathered the women together to play the trembles, to play the music, and, and she sang. In that way, even going back to that time, it was a choral event. Um, I can only think of one psalm that uh, goes back to the Exodus, and that's a psalm, of psalm 90, um, because Moses wrote Psalm 90. But then, as you come to, up to this time of Solomon's Temple, then all of these psalms were being written, and they're all going to be sung chorally. Uh, so, yep, the... The, the songs as we sing today, excuse me, as we sing today, they've, they've um, always been uh, in a choral manner. Uh, one thing I did notice from the psalm we looked at earlier, um, if I can just pick that up a minute, without making the microphone sing. Uh, I've lost it for a minute, but um, when I I looked at it just now, that song that we were on, I picked out at the start, it's one of the hymns that we sing. Um, And um, uh, in a minute, um, before Matt finishes, I'll pick it up quickly, and I'll just just mention that to you. He'll sing it to us. Um, We are coming into land... Uh, and it is um, it's your turn. So what we're going to do is stick a question up and we're going to give you five minutes in groups to chat about the question and to come up with what you think the answer might be. Is that all right? Um, so the question is this. We think of Psalm 22 as a messianic psalm, meaning a psalm about Jesus. But is that what it meant to David when he wrote it? And if not, is it right for us to make it about Jesus? Does that question make sense? So Psalm 22, we think about it being about Jesus. Did it mean that to David when he wrote it? And if it didn't, is it right for us to make it about Jesus? You've got five minutes in your groups. Have a chat. And then uh, we'll share some answers and see what you guys think. Cool. Can I just pick up, before you do that, can I just pick up, it comes from Psalm 18, which we were on, um, which the question was, to the faithful, you show yourself faithful, um, but to devious, you show yourself shrewd. At the start of that psalm, it says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock. In, in that psalm would come, I love you, Lord, my strength. I will love you, Lord, my rock. I will love you all my days, forever and a day. I will love you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I just, uh, when I was reading through that psalm, I just picked that up. That was all. Okay. All right, then. 30 seconds, and then we'll come back together if you want to finish off anything. Um, who wants to, which group wants to go first? Who wants to share their answer first? Come on. Yeah, oh, right. Okay, I'm going to start there and I'll come to you second. Okay, go, Ross. 
Hello. Um, so answering the first bit, Messianic Psalm, um, I'm just going to tell you roughly, we had some going on. Um, we think at the time that it was um, David talking about God, um, and, you know, and I said to Chris when he came over that, you know, if Jesus is uh, like the Trinity, then obviously if he's Father, Son, and Spirit, then, you know, you could make those assumptions. We also spoke about um, that uh, on the cross, Jesus kind of uses the first line, but we were saying that maybe that's because of the people at the time that were listening would be able to make that kind of track back through time. And it was kind of reading it as a story, so like a, a whole story instead of just the snapshot, as, you know, kind of as you do, like flicking back through different bits and kind of seeing that. So we kind of think it's a bit of both. Um, and I think, Joe, I'll pass over to Joe because she said something about the last couple of passages, which was quite interesting. I hope she remembers. So, um, so I was just wondering if, you know, perhaps David's written it thinking about who is to come, not that he necessarily knew it as Jesus, or, but like right at the end I was doing quick skim reading and getting to kind of um, verse 29 and to the 31, like all of the rich of the earth will feast and worship. Um, verse 31 says they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn he has done it. Like that feels very, it is finished, you know, God has won. So it, it feels like there is that kind of uh, signposting to Jesus, whether um, maybe David meant it to quite be that or not. I don't know if we're ever going to necessarily answer that question. Um, but that, that feels like it's right for us to make it about Jesus because we're, we're seeing, like Ross said, we're seeing this as a bigger picture. And we can think of it in the context of David's time, but it's fine to add that extra layer and make it about Jesus as well. I love um, that you said that Jesus quoted it on the cross, um, which absolutely then gives you permission to then go and make it about him. So one of the things that uh, ancient Jewish uh, rabbis would do is if they were um, wanting to reference something or get you thinking about something, they would quote the first line of a chapter or a psalm or a scripture. But the inferences that you would... Because just remember, the Jewish people, they weren't like us. They weren't like, oh, gosh, let me grab Google and find out where that verse is. Uh, the, the Jewish people, they knew the scriptures, by the time they were 10 years old, they knew pretty much most of the Torah, the five books, off by heart. And the first book that they learn? Leviticus. Yes. But they know it off by heart. So when Jesus quotes that first line on the cross, instantly everyone gathered around him who was a Jew is going, oh, oh. And they're seeing this scene play out. So yeah, I absolutely love that. Okay. Anybody else want to chip in? Who wants to add some stuff? Did you guys want to... Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I immediately uh, thought about David's line and uh, Mary, uh, which I associated with um, with uh, 
Uh, yeah, yeah, it would be the the earthly side of some um, uh, 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 prophecy. Okay. And this young lady here, she came up with something really interesting. Oh, great. They pierce my hands and my feet, um, and then they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. That's referring to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. When we look at this psalm, it's really hard for us not to see Jesus, isn't it? Yeah, okay. Um, go. So I've just been indulged one more time. But um, I just thought of Luke 4, actually, when you were talking about um, sort of which way round it all comes. And it's just the bit where... Um, Jesus in in the synagogue reads out a portion of Isaiah and then, you know, he sort of rolls it up. I just imagine him rolling up really slowly and, you know, just neatly and then putting it down and says, you know, this scripture is fulfilled in, in me. And I think, you know, I, I, do, I do, I do, I definitely think we can get into the trap of trying to find the prophetic um, sort of vision of Jesus in everything and forgetting that there's a story that comes before it, before it that's really important and I think this is a great example because you know Isaiah was, was talking about a specific time and also the outworking of what, what God was doing throughout a long time um, and I don't think he would have been thinking this is exactly what Jesus is going to do when he picks up the scroll X amount of time later. But there's a, there's a sort of irony in, even now, I'm just stumbling around trying our best. And then, you know, when you just think 10 years later, you look back and think, I can't believe Jesus just did that without me even knowing. You know, that's the grace of God and that's the power of God that throughout all of this, whether it's definitively prophetic david knew this is exactly what jesus is going to do or just this is exactly what's happening in this time god is looking out on all of it and saying just you wait until you see where this ends up because you're not going to believe it yeah and that's that's the beauty of it and i think that's that's what what's worth sort of coming to at the end great any no okay yeah Oh, okay. He's suffering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I love Psalm 22. Yeah. It's gloriously prophetic, isn't it? It, is. it? The actual words that came from the cross from the Lord Jesus, I think, is a total mixture of both. But, I mean, even in Psalm 23, he says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How does he know he's going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever? You know, I think with all his psalm playing, perhaps when he was a shepherd, you know, all this God is filling his mind with. You know, you can't say, oh, my bones are out of joint, can you? Um, you can't say, you know, you've hidden your face from me, which is what he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, all those things are gloriously prophetic. So, yeah. I think um, uh, David did go through some awful, awful um, circumstances himself. And at times he did say, where are you, God? Where are you, God? Um, so I think this is, this is a reflection of how he's felt through his wilderness 
travelings, fleeings and all that. Um, but as we said before, Jesus made it about him when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. 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 Um, it, is a, it is a messianic psalm. It definitely points to Jesus, but it's very easy for us to look at it and instantly think of Jesus and miss the fact that David was not thinking about Jesus when he wrote the psalm. Sorry if you think he was. Um, I mean, maybe he was, but I think when you read the psalm, David was writing about the anguish of stuff that he went through. You, you read about his life and some of the things that happened, and he is he's writing a song about where are you, God, in the midst of all of this? And yet, and yet the Spirit of God is at work to do something to reveal, because the Messiah would be from the line of David. He would be the new David. He would be the new Moses. And so naturally, when we look at the lives of Moses and David and people like that, we're going to start seeing foreshadowing of the Messiah. Now, I think the, um, the thing that gives us the most authority to take this as a messianic psalm is the fact that Jesus himself quoted it. Um, but also, turn with me to, to Luke, um, to Acts. Uh, sorry, no, to Luke, Luke 24, Luke 24. In Luke 24, we get the story uh, of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And um, Jesus appears to them as they're walking along, and they've got no idea who he is. And... Um, and uh, they're like, he's like, what, what, why are you upset? What's going on? And they're like, where the heck have you been? Like, do you not know about Jesus? And we thought he was the Messiah and he died. Like, how have you missed this news? Everybody knows about this. And so Jesus, he's walking along with them. And, um, and then he starts to speak to them. Um, I'm just trying to find the verse. Here we go. Verse 25. I love that. He said to them, idiots. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> um, and then he goes on. And, in, and it, it says this. Um, verse 27. <clears throat> and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So here's the thing. This is a book about a guy called Abraham and a guy called Moses and a people known as the Israelites. And it is a book about humanity and the things that they got up to. But this is a book, ultimately, that is all about Jesus. Because Jesus himself explained to his disciples on the road to Emmaus how all the scriptures were about him. Um, it says starting with Moses and then the prophets. Um, and that means the whole Old Testament. We think of the Old Testament as Moses, so the Torah, the first five books. Then we think of the, the wisdom literature and his, history. I guess we've got wisdom and history. And then we think of the prophets as Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Obadiah and all, all those other guys, right? So we think of it like that. But if you're a Jewish thinker, you just think of the books of Moses and the prophets. Because what we think of as the history books and the wisdom literature, the Jews think of as the former prophets. And what we call the, the prophets, they call the latter prophets. So you've got the prophets that looked back on the history and went, 
oh, this is what God was doing. And they spoke into history what God had been doing. And then, and then, and then uh, on the first day of the week, um, and then... So was my family. <laughs> and, and then on... And, come here. <laughs> Honestly. Um, so the... the the, 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 what they call the former prophets, what we think is the history books, are prophetic people looking back on the history saying, this is what God was doing. It's a prophetic viewing of the history. And then what we call the prophets, what they call the latter prophets, they're the ones that go, this is what God's going to do looking forward. Does that make sense? So when Jesus says, when he says to them, hey, let me start with Moses and the prophets, what Jesus is saying is, let me take you through the whole of the scriptures and show you how all of the scriptures are about me. So I think you could probably take most of this to be about Jesus. Uh, but definitely, yes, yeah, Psalm 22 is. And I think we have permission to read it in that way. Even though David may have been writing it about his real experiences, the spirit has breathed onto it and is pointing to Jesus through it. So, yeah. Is that cool? Great. Um, that is it, guys. That is the end of um, this month's Bible Q&A. Next month, we'll be looking at uh, Joshua and the book of Acts. That's where we would have read up to you by then. So uh, as you're reading through, if you want to write your questions down, drop them in the black box, and we'll do same same thing, same time next month, looking at those books. Um, Den, do you want to pray for us? Lord, thank you for this night. It's... Uh gathering together of us, uh, your children, your people. And Lord, we just ask that you will send us out now uh, in the knowledge that we've gained tonight, in the love that we've gained tonight, in the way that you have come to us and that you have shared with us and that you have shown with us as a body of your people, as a body of your church here at Counterslip. So Lord, we want to bless you because we've come here tonight to learn about you, and we ask that you will bless us now as we go to our families, to our homes. And Lord, we just praise your holy name. Amen.